Thank you, everyone. Matthew chapter 2, if you have a Bible, it will be on the screen, but um, I would love you to have your own copy with you. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read the entire chapter, that's 23 verses. So if you're there, let's read this passage together. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where this Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem and Judea. They replied, for as the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went their way. And the star that they had been following went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route, in verse 13, and escaped to Egypt. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. In verse 19, the return to Nazareth. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to kill the child are now dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in place of his father, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray one more time before we unpack this chapter together. Spirit, we say, come. We invite you to move in this place. 
we would invite you to move in our hearts. We ask you to prepare our hearts and to transform our hearts and to bring this text to life. We enter a season, and in many ways, it's so familiar. We've heard this passage numerous times, but we would ask our God that tonight you would bring it to life in a fresh, new way that maybe we have never before considered. It's the spirit of the living God. I ask you to come and I ask you to breathe. And I ask you to be our teacher in this place. And I pray that I would get out of the way so that you could interrupt this service with your truth and with your power and that we would leave here tonight with a new understanding of who you are, a new appreciation for who you are, a new wonder and awe, not in the preacher, but in the person that we are looking at in your text tonight. So spirit, come, spirit, move, and spirit, have your way. I ask this in your name, and everyone said, amen. So I was thinking about Christmas this week, because you're supposed to think about Christmas this week. Thinking about Christmas this week, and I thought, Christmas tends to bring out either the very best in someone or the very worst in someone, or sometimes it brings out both. It brings out the very best or the very worst in someone. At its best, it's a season of goodwill and good cheer. Merry Christmas, God bless you. Good tidings to all at its very best. At its very worst, we have some anger management issues as there's total gridlock as you enter into the shopping center car park that you need to be. Big long queue. And when you eventually get through that big long queue and eventually get your car parked and eventually get out and walk into the shopping center that you've been queuing and waiting to get into, which already is packed, you enter into that shopping supermarket and you hear over the sound system, would security please go to aisle number six? As you discover, two people are fighting over the last bottle of slur in the shop, you being one of those two people. I'm sure that would never happen in Willowfield. At its very best, Christmas is one of those seasons where you can just let go a little. Like diet starts in the new year, it's okay to eat festive treats. It's okay just to let go a little at its very best. At its very worst, you've already had an entire tin of roses before breakfast, and you're realizing that your kind of waistband and your trousers is getting a little too tight, and it's only the 8th of December. The passage we're looking at tonight, we get to see the very best and the very worst of Christmas. I wonder, did you see that in the passage? The very best and the very worst. We'll start this sermon with O Little Insignificant Town of Bethlehem. You all know that song. You all know about Bethlehem. You all know that Bethlehem's about five or six miles south of the capital city, Jerusalem. But here's the thing. It's a really insignificant town. You had no information kiosk in Bethlehem. You had no top ten things to do in Bethlehem because there wasn't all that many things to do in Bethlehem. It was like one of those places you just kind of traveled through. It wasn't very important, wasn't very significant whatsoever. But in Matthew chapter 2, Bethlehem comes on everyone's radar. And the reason it comes on everyone's radar is because there's a rumor. Did you hear the rumor? I heard a rumor that in this little insignificant town, there's been a really significant birth. Apparently, 
apparently a newborn king has been born. But here's the thing. Everyone in Bethlehem missed it. There had been no press. There had been no camera crews waiting outside Bethlehem Maternity Hospital. There was no inside scoop. There was no paparazzi. There was no bets on the favorite royal name. Everyone missed it. In fact, news stations completely overlooked this. No one saw it coming. No one was interested. And the reason no one saw it coming or no one was really interested is because the town already has a king. The king is a guy called Herod or Herod the Great. And at the stage we meet him in Matthew chapter 2, he's already been reigning for about 35 years. So there's not enough room for another king in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem or in Judea. It has its king. He's a famous king, really well known for his lavish, extravagant playboy lifestyle that he lived. He used to tax the surrounding cities and surrounding towns really heavily. He would take a scrip of that money and he would use that to fund his lifestyle. That's how he enjoyed it. At someone else's expense, he just stole money from other people. That's what he did. He is really famous for some of his building projects. One of his building projects is the rebuilding of the Old Testament temple. It took about 40 years to build. And if you remember back to the Bible Comes to Life exhibition on this very stage that I am standing, there was a detailed, impressive, skilled model of that temple. The older he got, the more paranoid he became. Because the older he got, he kept thinking that other people were right to get him or knock him off, or other people were right to take his power or take his throne. So he became very paranoid. He became very violent, very brutal. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his favorite wife, of which he had many. And he killed three of his sons, all because he saw them as a threat to his power, to his throne. So he got rid of them. So you can imagine how news is going to go down in Matthew chapter 2 that there's a new king on the block. But here's the thing. Everyone missed it. No one saw it coming. And as the song says, as Bethlehem lay still in deep and dreamless sleep, they just missed what happened. So if you're going to be responsible for the PR in this whole announcement of Jesus, which is supposed to be the most significant announcement. Like last week when I was preaching from uh, Isaiah chapter 7, we were saying we had to wait 700 years. So you get 700 years to make a pretty big deal of how you're going to announce your Messiah. And in terms of the PR person, they need fired in Matthew chapter 2 because they picked the wrong location, an insignificant place called Bethlehem, and they picked the wrong time, nighttime, everyone's asleep. This is a PR disaster in Matthew chapter 2. A little insignificant town of Bethlehem. Another song title, Starry, Starry Night. The entire city might have missed what is going on in Matthew chapter 2. They might have been asleep or unaware or missed the birth or missed the announcement. But there was three people in our story who didn't miss this. Three people who come from the east, the far east, and they have traveled to see what is going on. They have followed a star. So these are the three wise men. These are the three magi. These are three astrologers. So if you did, if you're one of the thousand people that went through the nativity, I went through the nativity on Saturday morning with my family, and I kind of thought, oh, 
I wish this was still on Sunday because rather than me preach for 30 minutes, I would just take me a 40-minute tour of the nativity because all of this is in the nativity that you heard. But you got to see the wise men. Some of the wise men are in here tonight, not in their beautiful um, disguises or costumes that they were in, but they're here tonight. These are three men, three wise men, three magi, three astrologers who noticed something in the sky, something bright, a star bright in the sky, and they followed it. And some people think that they traveled anywhere from 500 to 1,000 miles following this star. And they could only do that at nighttime. And they reckon that it would take them months to get to where they're at in Matthew chapter 2. In fact, one commentary or some reports I've read said it could take them up to two years of traveling. Imagine traveling two years. And here they come in Matthew chapter 2 and in verse 2 they ask this question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These are three men who have diligently and faithfully followed after one single star. And that sign, that one single star, if they followed it 500 to 1,000 miles from a few months to two years, if they followed that one star, it eventually brought them to the creator God who flung the billions of stars into space. Isn't that crazy to think about? They follow one star and they meet the creator God, Jesus, little baby Jesus in a manger who breathed, who spoke the world into being, according to Genesis chapter 1, according to John chapter 1. And here he is. Can you imagine that moment? This is a moment of worship. They want to meet with Jesus to worship Jesus. And when we hear that word worship, we are supposed to think of this posture of falling at the feet of the King of Kings, falling at his feet in a posture of complete surrender and complete awe. They might have been full of anticipation in chapter 2, but Herod wasn't full of anticipation. He's full of dread in Matthew chapter 2. In fact, verse 3 tells us that he is disturbed. He is disturbed. The reason he's disturbed is because he is jealous of this new king and he is threatened by this new king. In verse 8, he seems to be inquisitive. So he doesn't let that side out. He doesn't let out the side that he is jealous or threatened. He instead appears rather inquisitive in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, it says, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, will you report it back to me? Because I want to to go and worship that king. Of course, he didn't want to go and worship this king. How we know that is if you read on a little further, we see his true intentions in this chapter all along. But here's the other thing that I was thinking about this week. Why would you be content to settle for a second-hand report? Why would you just rather have someone report that message back to you? Why not travel? And remember, it's only five miles. Why not just travel five miles? If you're so keen to meet this new king and worship this new king, why not just travel five miles with these three men and go and meet the Messiah for yourself? And I guess that got me thinking about our attitude towards Christmas. I wonder, are we as faithful or as diligent about following a sign to meet Jesus? I wonder, are we as willing to 
count the cost and travel a distance so that we would meet with Jesus. Because we're all familiar with this time of the year. Like I said, the carols that we sing we're familiar with. The type of church that we do over Christmas we're familiar with. And it's kind of like the done thing to do to come along to church, at least once over Christmas time. Like it's just a safe thing to do, and that's it. Give me a good carol. Give me a good mince pie. Give me some mulled wine. I'll tick the box. Happy days. See you again next year. And just like that, it's over. And we'll do the same thing with the Christmas decorations. We'll put them in a box. We'll pack them all up. The tree, the decoration, the lights all go in a box. We pack them up. We lift them up the stairs, throw them into the wrist space, and we just forget about it for another year. And sometimes religiously we do that as well. Sometimes spiritually we do that as well. And we might even be content to hear a second-hand report of what someone else is doing. Like, if you want to worship your Jesus, go ahead and worship your Jesus. Tell me how great it is. That's amazing too, but that's not for me. Imagine being so close to the presence of God, five miles away from Jesus' actual birth and just not bothering to take that short journey and go and meet him. Imagine being the Magi in this passage. Can you imagine going to that makeshift delivery room and some humble little manger over in the corner of that little house? Can you imagine peering at Jesus? Can you imagine being them after their long travels, these long, dark, cold journeys of 500 to 1,000 miles, dangerous at times, uncomfortable at times? Can you imagine them getting a glimpse of the Messiah, of actually seeing Jesus? Can you imagine them kneeling before baby Jesus and realizing the King of all kings is here? The long-awaited Messiah has come. No more waiting, no more longing. Jesus is here. Heaven literally is touching earth at this point. Can you imagine being there? And then can you imagine just being five miles away and missing all that? Imagine. Silent night, unholy night. Our Christmas nativity changes really dramatically at this point, from verses 13 to 15. It'd be nice to camp out on those first number of verses. It'd be nice to camp out on nativity. And we should, it's nativity season, so we should just camp out in those. But our scene changes dramatically in a few verses. When the Magi depart in verse 13, we're told the angels come to Joseph in a dream. And he tells Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus to flee because Herod is looking to kill Jesus. The same guy who in first year wanted to worship Jesus is now looking to kill Jesus. Can you see how our nativity becomes really dark and really sinister really quickly? In verse 14, Joseph and his family flee by night because it's the safest thing to do. On a cold night, they flee, and they probably make a journey of about 500 miles towards Egypt. The reason they go to Egypt is because it's outside Herod's jurisdiction. And since Herod can't touch them there, they flee, they flee. They've just come to terms with his birth. They've just seen the Savior of the world, the hope of the world, the Messiah, Jesus, born, and then they have to flee for 500 miles 
for their life. Herod realizes that he has been tricked, and in a fit of unholy rage, he orders that every baby boy of two and under be slaughtered. What a tragic, tragic moment this is. What a violent, wicked, unholy night this is. If you noticed in Matthew chapter 2, it keeps talking about, and the prophet said, or where the prophet once said. So what it's doing in Matthew, Matthew's really famous for this. He'll take Old Testament prophecies and jump back and forward between them. So at least three times in Matthew chapter 2, he jumps back. One of those references is in verse 18. And in verse 18, it quotes Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And that one single verse transports us back in time, about 720 years, and where we land is in a period of time known as the exile. The exile is the point where a foreign nation has come in and has destroyed or taken over God's people. They have taken them off as prisoners, they have taken them off as captives, they've taken them off as slaves. And Rachel, figuratively, in this passage, weeps at the end of the Old Testament. The reason she's weeping is because her children are being taken off as slaves and captives. And you have to balance that out in terms of, like we've been doing some, if you were with my word to action, we've gone through the life of David. That life of David kind of then flows over into the life of Solomon. If you're here on Sunday nights in 1 Kings, we looked at the life of Solomon. That is literally the highest point. That is a point in history where Israel are at their peak. They are the world's superpower. Everyone was scared of them. They were the strongest force. They were the world's superpower. They had taken over a vast amount of a kingdom. They were united. They were strong together in this united kingdom. And everything at one point was going so well. But then sin and disobedience and rebellion came. And that kingdom split in two. And after a number of years, the northern tribe gets wiped out and the southern tribe is taken off into slavery. And as you are taken off in chains to each other, you are taken away from your promised land. You are taken away from your blessing. You are taken away from everything good that God has given you and you are now a slave. You were once a slave in Egypt for 400 years, but God rescued from that, took you on a journey, put you in the promised land, put you on a pedestal and blessed you. But then you sinned and rebelled against God and thought that you were better than God and you're carried off as slaves. And as you're carried off as slaves and chained together, you take one glimpse behind you to see for one last time your home, your home. And it is in flames and it is destroyed and it is rubble and it is ash. And that is what you see as you get towards the end of the Old Testament. That is why Rachel weeps at this point, because everything in that moment is lost. Everything in that moment is taken away from the people. Now, there is a point where some of them do return. A small band of them return. That's what Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai is all about. But they never get back to those former glory days under King David or King Solomon. And then we come to the New Testament. As we open up the New Testament, you see there's a new superpower on the block. And it's Rome. And they are violent. And they are ruthless. And it seems like there's no way back for God's people because this superpower is still oppressing God's people. 
And then there's another blow in our story. If that's not all bad enough, there's another blow in Matthew chapter 2 as Herod unleashes his evil on the people and orders these baby boys to be murdered and slaughtered just in a fit of rage. Just in a fit of rage. This is the ultimate picture of tragic separation. What a violent night. What an unholy night. And can you hear Rachel cry? I want you to feel that. Figuratively again, can you hear her cry in this passage? Can you hear the echo of her cry in the night, in the silence, in the hopelessness? Can you hear her cry as now her children are being slaughtered? Can you hear that echo in the silence, in the darkness? And then can you hear another cry in Matthew chapter 2? Can you hear another cry that counters the hopelessness of Rachel's cry? Can you hear a cry that roars? Can you hear a cry that roars at evil and roars at the darkness and roars at the evil and roars at Herod? Can you hear that cry? Zoom into that cry. Follow it with your ear. Where does it lead you? It leads you to this manger. It leads you to this little baby in a manger. The God who breathed life into all things in Genesis chapter 1 is in Matthew chapter 2, breathing from tiny little human lungs. And that doesn't seem like the most significant picture. Like if you're going to rewrite the Christmas story, would you not choose some mighty, powerful savior? Not a baby. Like, it doesn't seem all that significant, this little baby. But make no mistake about it. This is the most significant birth and the most significant life and the most significant cry because this cry causes Herod and the very forces of hell to tremble. <laughs> and I love that. I love that. I love that this tiny, vulnerable, little life, this little baby cries and it roars. And Herod and the forces of hell tremble and fear as God stirs in a crib. Like we were singing a song about tremble and saying the name of Jesus. Like, this is the life. This is a little baby. I, I need to do this. I'm, I'm going to borrow your shoes. You have, these aren't Ruben's shoes. These shoes here, these are a present to Jacob, isn't it? Yep. So the, the, Ruben had these sitting beside him. These are little baby shoes, okay? The first thing I thought when I saw these, these are so cute. How cute are these tiny little shoes? See when the forces of hell, see when Herod sees the tiny feet of baby Jesus, they trembled with fear. Can you imagine that? Like Herod the Great is trembling with fear at this tiny little baby. Because not only is heaven touching earth, but God through Jesus is breathing life and breathing hope and breathing his presence into this world. I just love that. I just love that this tiny little baby, God who is wrapped in flesh, stirring in a a crib and all of hell trembles in fear. You need to know how mighty your God is 
You need to grasp that, how mighty our God is, how powerful our God is. There is no one that compares to him. Whatever you need to step into this week, whatever is going on in your life or your world or whatever is surrounding you, and go, I don't sense that God is there. I don't feel God. You need to know how powerful our God is. Even God as a baby in a manger, stirring like any child would, caused all of hell to tremble in fear. Even you saying the name of Jesus makes demons run and flee. You need to understand. We need to understand. This church needs to understand. As we step into a new season, we need to understand how powerful our God is and be in awe of that. And that is who we need to worship. That is who we need to fall down. That is who we need to worship. Almighty God. Let's come to our last point. Kind of, if you've been noticing, I don't normally give you titles. I'm giving you titles tonight because songs came to my head when I was doing these titles. Last song title for you. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ our Lord. When all the preparation of Christmas is over, when you've bought too much and shopped too much and wrapped too much and cooked too much and stocked up too much on all your festive treats, when Christmas Day is over and the hype has died down and you've ate too much and napped too much and watched too much, what does Christmas really mean to you? What does Christmas really mean to you? I don't know how far you've traveled tonight to get to church. But this week, as I thought about this passage and I thought about these three men, Magi, I wondered about the distance they traveled. They leave from somewhere in Asia. They go third class on camels, the Camel Non-Oriental Express. Could have taken them months, could have taken them two years. They had to travel at nighttime. It's cold at nighttime. It's bitterly cold. It's dangerous at nighttime, and it's uncomfortable at nighttime. And these guys weren't able to Google map it and find out that it's potentially a thousand miles away. They just follow a bright star. Like if anyone you meet tonight says, I'm following a bright star home tonight, you think, you are crazy. These guys followed a star. They traveled between 500 and 1,000 miles. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? I wondered. I'd love if you could just jump in and ask them the question in Matthew chapter 2. I wonder if you were to ask them in Matthew 2 as they first gaze at baby Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. I believe they would have said a thousand miles was nothing, absolutely nothing compared to the significance of this moment as they literally gaze with their eyes upon Jesus and possibly, probably held the Messiah, the Savior of the world in their arms. I thought about that distance again that they traveled. And then I realized as I was reflecting and praying on this passage that Matthew chapter two is less about the distance that three men travel to meet with Jesus. And it is more about the distance that Jesus travels to meet with you and me. You ever think of that? The distance that Jesus traveled to meet with you and me. And it's easy to miss that. It's really easy to miss that because we're, we're in a passage in Matthew chapter two and it's Bethlehem. Who cares about Bethlehem? Like I know we sing about it once a year, but... It's not a really important place. It's quite insignificant, easy to miss it. The city, missed it. 
just a baby. It doesn't seem like the most significant way to make an announcement. And it's Christmas, and it's Carl's, and you knew that I was going to be preaching something Christmassy tonight, and there might be the odd Carl about, or over the next weeks there definitely will be. And it's easy just to miss this and become so familiar with this. I love the Christmas story. And the reason I love the Christmas story is because of the truth of what Matthew 2, you have to read behind the scenes in this here. What type of world is Jesus stepping into in Matthew chapter 2? A world that really don't care. A world that don't even notice him coming. A world that is in chaos and turmoil and darkness and silence. A world that is lost. A world that is hopeless. A world that is just mundane day to day. A world that is in need. A world that has been waiting for a savior. A world that is in need of hope and love. And Jesus steps into that. He steps into the seemingly unremarkable aspects of our world. He steps into the overlooked parts of our world. He steps into the forgotten parts of our world. He steps into the darkness. He steps into your silence. He steps into your hopelessness. When everyone else misses it, he steps in and he comes to you. I love Christmas. And I love these last two quotes I'm going to end with. Here's one. Brogdon says, We have made Christmas about coming home and being comfortable. Jesus' approach to Christmas was to leave his home and be uncomfortable. What do you think of Christmas when you think of Christmas? Who is this Jesus? I want us to diligently and faithfully pursue, lean into, experience Jesus. I don't want us to come this far and just miss it. I don't want us just to turn up at church. I don't want, I'll speak for myself, I don't want to turn up to church tonight. There's a million other places I could be tonight. But I don't want to come here and miss the presence of of Jesus. I don't want to just go through this season and miss the presence of Jesus. I don't want to start new year and miss the presence of Jesus. I don't want to go through my life and through my days missing the presence of Jesus. What does Christmas mean to you? Who is Jesus? Here's one last quote from a book called The King Has Come. There are many names for Jesus. The Bible is full of them. He is the first and the last the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the Ancient of Days. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the Anointed One, the Messiah. He is the Prophet and the Priest. He is the Savior, the only wise God and Savior. He is our Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the Almighty. He is the Lord. He is the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. He is the lamb, and the lamb without spot or blemish, the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He is the logos, the light, the light of the world, the light of light, the tree of life, the word of life, the bread that came down from heaven, the spring which if a person drink of it, he will never again thirst. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. He is the resurrection, the resurrection and the life. He is our rock, he is our bridegroom, our beloved, he is our redeemer. He is the one who is altogether lovely. He is the head over all things, which is his body, the church. 
He is God with us, Emmanuel. But above all, above all, he is Jesus. 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 We love him for that name because that name means Jehovah is salvation. And he came to save his people from their sins. I don't know what your focus is this Christmas. I don't know what your focus is tonight. I don't know what you're impressed with. I want us to be impressed with Jesus. Because there is no one that loves us like Jesus. I want us to lean into his presence because there is no place that you can be that is more fulfilling and satisfying than to step into his presence. He can touch you, he can change you, he can save you. He can touch you, he can change you, he can heal you. He is powerful, he is mighty. With him in his life, when you, with, with him in your life, demons run and flee. Darkness trembles. There is a power with Jesus in your life. So this Christmas evening, let us diligently and faithfully follow those signs so that we like the men in this passage, will worship God. Let's pray.